I believe in the in the evil in human nature. This is a wicked, wicked world. And uh, in a wicked world, you, wicked people are born. I'm not going to blame society, my race, or people, or anything. Uh, it is up to the individual like myself uh, to to keep on knocking on, on whatever door they want to get into. Welcome back to another Grizzly Books podcast episode. Today we're going to be looking at Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, which is the Netflix documentary all about Richard Ramirez. If you haven't watched it yet, I would rather recommend that you do that and then come back sometime to listen to this episode. Of course, you're not limited to that. If you, if you like spoiler alerts, then welcome to it. You are welcome to be here. So, let's get started. We are all evil. In some form or another, are we not? Okay, so this documentary premiered on the 13th of January 2021. So there was a good start to 2021 that we had some new true crime stuff to watch on Netflix, isn't it? And I was one of those that binge watched the whole thing. I mean, it's only four episodes. It's not too long, but it definitely held my attention. So I would say that I enjoyed it. Now, the reason I'm saying it like that is because I've been reading some of the preliminary reviews of this documentary, and I'm quite shocked to see that people are saying it's way too graphic, and it's just so gruesome, and there's so many unnecessary details, where I feel like it's a true crime documentary, so people should sort of know what they're signing up for. I think if it had gone the other way, and maybe been a little bit too tame, if I could say it like that, then the audience that it was intended for, which are mostly true crimers, like all of us, would have been disappointed. And that's, of course, not what they would want. So here's an example. It's from today.com. And they say, even self-proclaimed true crime enthusiasts are struggling with the graphic content in Netflix's new docuseries, Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, which details the effort to catch Richard Ramirez, who was convicted of 13 counts of murder, and 11 counts of sexual assault for his crimes in California. And so it goes on. But like, that's mostly what I'm seeing is that people are so shocked about how gruesome and graphic it was. For example, if we look at the NewYorkPost.com, it's NYPost.com, they say, this one gave viewers night terrors. Audiences were undoubtedly anticipating some on-screen blood when Netflix announced it was making a docuseries on serial killer Richard Ramirez, who stalked Los Angeles in the 1980s. However, the content depicted in The Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, was so graphic that even seasoned true crime fans had to shut it off. I find that very hard to believe. The article goes on to say, despite its disturbing subject matter, social media watchdogs were nonetheless shocked at the grisly crime scene photos and bloody reenactments that included a close-up shot of a knife sticking out of a body and blood falling in slow motion. Watching the new Netflix Night Stalker series, no need for them to include the victim crime scene photos and slow-mo blood spatter shots. It's not necessary, wrote one appalled viewer of the docuseries Lurid Imagery. Another person tweeted, Not sure if I can get through all of Night Stalker on Netflix. This is tough viewing. Even calloused viewers found the gore a bit gratuitous. One commented that even though they don't scare easily, they wouldn't recommend the police procedural unless you have a very thick skin for true crime. 
Other Twitter users thought the series glorified Ramirez without honoring the victims, a common critique of how killers are covered in the media. Now that one I strongly disagree with because this entire documentary was from the perception of the police and the victims, meaning the, the families of the victims. So, so of course, everyone is very much entitled to have their own opinion. I just thought maybe I'd make an episode and discuss it just so that if you did enjoy it and you didn't find it too gruesome or too graphic, that maybe you would have this episode to listen to and actually have someone who's maybe on your page. Because I'm not seeing too much of that, even though I know that most of us in the actual true crime community would actually like this documentary. Okay, so let me start with some of the basics. So I actually like the way that they structured the whole documentary. Um, they did it by days of tracking him. So it was like day one, you know, day five, and eventually getting up to day 167, I believe. I like that. I like the dramatic music. And I know this is a very strange detail to like, but I really like the font that they used that said the name The Night Stalker. I thought that was pretty cool. It went very well with the program. It was kind of edgy font. And, you know, I really liked looking at the whole police work and how they, they chased the killer and how they got to actually sit down with him once they caught him an interview. That was pretty cool. I don't know if you've watched, I'm assuming you have, but if you've watched the Hannibal series, not just the movies, I mean the, the TV series, um, I think that was only three seasons, right? The music in Hannibal reminds me of the music that they used for this documentary, so I like it. I thought that was pretty cool as well. So I've made some notes in a notebook, so it's very, um, I guess, old school, you know, to sit with a paper and a pen and jot down notes while I'm watching a documentary and sipping some wine, but why not, you know? <laughs> I wanted to make some notes just so that I can maybe offer you a bit of a chatty episode where you could just have a listen to what another true crimer thinks about the documentary. So one of the first things that I wrote down was Detective Gil Carrillo's quote. I found it so morbid at the beginning of the documentary where he said, you start dying the day you're born, you know. It's almost a twist of what Ted Bundy said right before he got executed, where he was saying, you know, we're all going to die. I just at least have a better idea of when, because he had his execution date. Whereas this detective was like, we're all going to die. We just don't know when, but you already start dying the day you're born. I mean, um, I just found that perfectly dramatic and morbid, you know, the right way to kick off a, a true crime episode. Okay, so a lot of the documentary was interviewing Detective Gil Carrillo and Frank Salerno. So we know Frank Salerno was one of the detectives that helped to catch the hillside stranglers. And so he was a head honcho and chose Gil Carrillo to be his partner, which was a huge deal to him at the time. That was his absolute dream. He couldn't believe it. I like the way that he said, I was tickled pink. I was flying. You know, <laughs> I like the way he describes things. So a lot of the documentary is based on interviews with those two um, investigators. Okay, so the next thing that I scribbled down was from the lady called Esther Petcher. Now, she's the lady that said at the end of the documentary, those are some of the dumbest bitches I've ever seen. And I've seen many of you have said that that's one of the best lines, your favorite line from the documentary, and I have to agree. It was so well put, and she just said it. She didn't hold back at all. Do you know that she's actually an artist? She's got an Instagram page. So if you literally type in her name on Instagram, Esther Petcher, or I hope I'm saying it right, um, she's got beautiful art that she's got on display there. I think she's got just over 400 followers. 
So I was planning to follow her, but I haven't yet because I sort of made a mini meme when I was saying that quote that she said about Richard Ramirez driving past her and just grinning at her like like a killer clown. I cracked up when she said that because I'm like, no, 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 Night Stalker, not Killer Clown. That's John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> That's his title. So I didn't want to follow her yet because I just I had just uploaded that meme that I made um, featuring her picture and then John Wayne Gacy like looking at her and just literally that quote. So I'm going to follow her. I just didn't want to offend anyone. That's never my intention. I just sometimes find funny moments in, for instance, this documentary where she's like, he was looking at me like a killer clown. And because it made me laugh, I thought maybe you guys would relate and it would make you laugh as well, which it seems to have. So yes, I'll just wait a little while and then I'll be following her. I also liked how she described the hat that he left behind and she's like, it said ACDC on it. And I thought that was weird. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> that was that was pretty classic. I apologize in advance if this episode is kind of scatterbrained and, you know, all over the place. It's because it's based on the notes that I've just scribbled down literally with a black pen, ballpoint pen in my book. And I'm just literally discussing some of the notes I made. Um, so that's the disclaimer for that. So the next, I scribbled down some stuff about Anastasia. I won't even try to say her surname because I'll probably butcher it. It's spelled H-R-O-N-A-S. So is it Ronas? Is that how you say it? Anastasia Ronas. See, I told you I'd butcher it. So she was six years old when she encountered Richard Ramirez. Um, it was amazing to watch her be able to describe everything without completely breaking down. It was very traumatic. Um, it obviously, some people I see have only learned now from watching the documentary that Richard Ramirez was actually sexually assaulting children and that he was a pedophile at the time on top of everything else that he did most people seem to not have been aware of that so i'm glad that they have been made aware of that you know bring some awareness to that aspect to even just honor those victims and we'll discuss it a little bit later but of course we know in in court the cases weren't presented in court because they didn't want to cause any of the surviving children more harm by actually talking more about it in court and facing him but listening to her story it, it was pretty difficult, and I'm not saying that in the sense of, like, this documentary was too hard to watch. It was just, you know, the, the empathy for her and what she went through with him. You could feel that just by watching it, you know, just how she described everything and the details that she remembered and also the details that she forgot because that's how trauma works. So what she said was she was six years old, and this man came into her house and carried her out, and she felt safe with him at first because it felt like family. I could see that she was almost beating herself up for that. Like, how could I trust this person or just think that they're like family? It was just written all over her face. But of course, you could also see how she has battled that in her mind to know, well, I was only six years old, of course, you know. So I find that um, a lot of people who are abused as children tend to blame themselves. That's a normal trauma pattern. I myself have been through abuse in childhood, so that is a normal pattern to go through and when you try to be like couldn't I have done better couldn't I have been more alert or couldn't I have just you know not been so trusting whatever but you really can't beat yourself up if you were a kid you know bad things happen sometimes and that really was not her fault um, even for feeling for a moment trusting of him she was half asleep as she said it's definitely not her fault 
So she said that when they were in the car, she doesn't know for how long they were driving. She does not remember the inside of the car or any details about the car. The first memory she has about the car is when Richard Ramirez opened the glove compartment and showed her a gun and was basically like, well, just so that you know, that's there. So he threatened her life and that's one of her first trauma memories. So that also makes sense that that is still in her conscious mind because that was immediate threat, but nothing traumatic had happened yet besides being in a strange man's car. So it doesn't really surprise me that she didn't remember, you know, the inside of the car or how long they'd driven. I find that some people who've never been through trauma, if I could say it like that, I'm sure all of us have been through stuff. But like, if you haven't been through severe trauma, then I've found in my personal experience, people look at you like, well, how could you not remember that? You know, where you were or what something smelled like or looked like. But your brain protects you. Sometimes it blocks out certain things. And so I found what she remembered quite interesting, where she said she remembered the gun in the glove compartment. She remembered the German shepherds barking and she remembered the chain link fence. So she then memorized the scene, you know, of where she was when she actually kind of came to and like, oh, my word, I'm with a strange man. And she remembers those sounds of the dogs barking, the chain link fence. And then, of course, how triggering would a duffel bag be for her because he put her in a duffel bag. I would guess that beyond that, she would never want to use a duffel bag again in her life because he put her in the duffel bag, carried her into this house, told her to keep quiet. And she said it was so dingy and it was dark and dirty and just nothing like her home. So that is very traumatic, of course, even just to enter an environment like that because your survival instinct will kick in. You know, it would already be so overwhelming and so frightening. So I really felt for her because... She shared her whole story, obviously, on this documentary. What I also found eerie is what we would expect from a serial killer is the type of music they listen to while they're doing some of their most heinous crimes. And he had the soundtrack of Madonna playing and she said over and over and over again, like a virgin, over and over again. And that's just, man, imagine that because that's how trauma triggers work. Um... Imagine her being in a shopping mall and hearing like a virgin that would trigger all those memories again, because I find sometimes, um, again, people who haven't been through severe trauma or don't understand triggers and they think it's just a word to throw around like I'm so triggered right now. It's not really like that. Like some things can really be a PTSD or dissociative trigger to the point where you will literally re-experience that whole scene as if it's happening right now. And that can obviously lead to severe anxiety, panic attacks, dissociation, and all sorts of things. I could also see that when she described um, that she would be like, please stop, that hurts, please can I go to the bathroom? That was her way of trying to get away from him, that she said he would put her on the sink which is kind of weird. Does that mean that she didn't need the bathroom at all ever? You know what I mean? Or did he just put her on the sink and be like, all right, go to the bathroom? Because that's pretty weird of him as well, I guess. I mean, what do we expect from him? I don't expect much. It's just that detail was scary for me to think about him putting this little girl on the sink and being like, all right, go to the bathroom, you know? And so for her to go through that over and over again, where she felt like, okay, okay, I've gotten away from him for a second or he stopped doing what he was doing for a second, but then she's like, oh, then he would just continue straight after that. That was pretty hectic because when he was in that frame of mind, 
There's no way that he's going to stop until he's satisfied. And that, for some abusers, can last hours. And it's debilitatingly traumatic. So hearing her story was quite something. And then to know that he actually put her back in the duffel bag, that must have been so frightening, back in the bag, because now she thinks, well, what's going to happen next? And in a car and drove her to a gas station and told her to go inside and call 911 and get her family to fetch her. Imagine how she felt while she was waiting there for her family. Imagine seeing her mother again and actually having to even try to explain what just happened. I mean, this is where some people would just be like, oh, well, it was so long ago. You were you were six and now you're whatever age and just forget about it. Move on. You know, that's what I would call toxic positivity because, no, like that trauma was severe and it will always affect her and it will always be there. Even if you move on, it still happened. You know, one can't invalidate that experience. It happened and it happened for her with Richard Ramirez, like a horrendous serial killer who also sexually assaulted so many other children and it must have been absolutely terrifying but she was so brave in how she handled it and I'm so proud of her for being able to talk about it for sharing her story and for moving on with her life because that's amazing and to also say I wouldn't let him and what he did turn me into something just like him I found that very interesting because of course in a lot of serial killer cases they do experience generally this is generally speaking trauma in their childhoods and they have to decide what to do with it how do they channel those feelings and some of them decide to do horrendous things to other human beings so for her to say that was interesting to me that she was like I will not choose to become like him I will not be tainted and corrupted in this way as a child and then become like him, which I found so courageous and amazing. I really liked that she said all of that. Now, the interesting thing about Richard Ramirez is that he sexually assaulted not only girls, but boys and girls. He really was such a horrendous serial killer and serial rapist that, I mean, you couldn't, you really could not say what his victim profile was it really was just anyone so if he was killing it's like is it grannies a young couple you know who it's just anyone any house he enters is just killing the people and then for um, assaulting the children it's boys and girls it's different ages most of them were aged six to nine which is horrendous to think about but um yeah it's amazing to me how scattered and disorganized these crimes really were so as these cops were chasing down their serial killer and trying to convince people that this could literally be one person, even though it's never been documented before, they never had a killer like this before, that was interesting to see how much belief they had in themselves um, that this is really what they thought was going on and it actually ended up being. So if we look at um, Gil Carrillo and the, how the case affected his family, that was also hectic to watch to see how his wife said that the wife of a policeman needs a lot of patience and that's really true because it's long working hours it's quite a devastating and taxing especially psychologically job to do and at some point she didn't feel safe and she literally packed up the kids and she left um, and she said call me when this case is closed because I'm not staying here which makes sense. I mean, if I put myself in that position, I possibly would have done the same because you just start fearing for your own life and survival with your husband on this case and knowing that Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, who was also called, he was at first called 
the walk-in killer, which is not a cool name at all. <laughs> then he was called the valley intruder, getting better, getting better. Not that I'm trying to, I don't mean to sound like, yes, glorify them and give them cool names. I actually think they should stop giving serial killers cool names. I think that's part of the hype of like, ooh, what name am I going to get if I'm one, you know? So I think they should drop the names. That would help. Um, but anyway, he was the walking killer, the valley intruder, and then eventually the night stalker. So with the night stalker just breaking into houses and killing whole families, of course the wife would want to leave, get the hell out of town until the case is closed, uh, which makes sense. But imagine how hard that was as well for uh, Gil Carrillo to be at home alone after those long working days, not having maybe a meal to warm up, you know, having to now, I'm not saying he's an adult male, he can look after himself, but not having that nurturing, you know, washing done or just a warm cup of tea or a chat with your wife. It must have been such a grueling case for him to work. And I really think that they did really well on the case. Okay, now let's talk about the damn shoe. I found it, it shouldn't really be hilarious, but it's kind of hilarious because it's so ridiculous that this freaking avia shoe print was at every crime scene. Whether he was abducting and assaulting children or whether he was murdering whole families, there was the shoe print. Even that time on the blanket with the blood, he made a shoe print everywhere he went. Um, so <laughs> these avia shoes, even though they said they never actually recovered the shoes, I found that amazing too. Where the hell did the shoes go? Um, but for them, I always find that interesting with detective work where they have to actually figure out now what shoe is this and meet the actual maker of the shoe and figure out exactly how many they manufactured, exactly where they went. And to think that only six pairs of black avia shoes in the size 11 and a half were manufactured, five went to Arizona and only one went to Los Angeles. Damn, that really narrowed it down, didn't it? But man, oh man, everywhere that Richard Ramirez went, there was that damn shoe print. So one of the quotes that Richard Ramirez then said was, Satan is a stabilizing force in my life. It gives me a reason to be. It is a driving force that motivates me into doing things. Now why I find that interesting is because we all need a driving force. We all need some form of a belief system, some way to live our lives. Um, so it's interesting that this is pretty much all he knew and gravitated towards, and then he lived by that. So that's kind of dangerous to think um, of how he even got into that. And as we know, there was a lot of trauma in his childhood. He had a lot of bad influences. And I think he really found the wrong mentors in life. I know that's oversimplifying things, but for real, I think he found the wrong mentors in life. And he really just wanted to live up to those satanic belief system expectations which it makes sense from a logical aspect if you just look at it like that that he was actually just really trying to be significant you know belong to someone or something or a group and carry out that work it, it makes sense what he did but what a twisted belief system to use to harm other living creatures and human beings he also said, when you do something so many times, you're bound to get it wrong some of the time, which is true. That's usually, I'm usually shocked how the killer gets caught. Every book that I've written, I first start with how were they caught, because I find that the most interesting. There are so many serial killers at large, or just murders that happen in general. Obviously, I specialize in serial killers, so I look at those stats most of the time. 
and it's always about well, how did you get caught and sometimes it's the dumbest slip up ever it's like something so silly of how they they can commit these terrible terrible crimes and actually get away with so much and then they slip up on the smallest thing you know so this is him actually just saying that which was quite interesting to hear it from a serial killer's mouth where he's like well if you do it so many times some of the time you're going to get it wrong he was also very knowledgeable on serial killers he had studied ted bundy he had studied the hillside stranglers so he was saying that either it's going to be the killer making a mistake or it's going to be luck of the cops or you know other reasons that killers would actually get caught so i found it interesting how he almost spoke like a true crimer even though he was a serial killer in episode three we saw it kick off with them talking about him as if he was a coward which i suppose essentially many serial killers are that's at the core of what they do is based on this deep-seated insecurity and wanting to have a power trip really again i'm sorry for oversimplifying um, it just makes sense that they're like he was such a coward he just walked into houses at night while people were sleeping and he would usually take out the mail first which does kind of show that he was a coward he wouldn't stand up to the mail of the house he didn't want to have a fight with him or whatever so he just usually killed off the mail first and then assaulted everyone else in the house and either killed them all or some people survived and they were also featured on the documentary and that one lady that was saying that he said don't look at me um and she said, I swear to God, I won't look at you. And he said, don't swear to God, swear to Satan. And just hearing her again say, okay, okay, I swear to Satan, I won't look at you. Like, that must have been so terrifying for her to go through as well. The next thing I wrote down was composite sketch. Because, oh my goodness, did that composite sketch look like Richard Ramirez? No. <laughs> I find it, it shouldn't actually be funny because I know people are doing their best, right? When they get the descriptions and to draw what they think the killer looks like but just in this case it was really oh so wrong it really didn't look like him at all I don't know what you think I just whoa if you compare the two pictures I mean they really didn't accentuate those cheekbones they did not show those full lips they didn't actually depict what he looked like as much as they tried to draw and sketch and guess what he did look like so sometimes the composite sketches aren't too accurate um, for instance, as you know, I'm busy finishing up the John Wayne Gacy book, so that's coming out soon. And in the research, I actually found that there was a lady that literally created kind of, I don't know what material it is, um, like Plaster of Paris, I would guess, models, um, restructuring the faces of how she would think the victims that have still not been identified looked. And when they interviewed her, she recently died, I think now um, just a few months ago. When they interviewed her, they asked, how do you know that this is how the person looks? And she said, well, I just feel that they look like this. And we saw in some of even John Wayne Gacy's cases with the victims that what they drew and imagined they would look like when they actually did identify the bodies, even if it took 20 years, they really didn't look like that, you know? So that's quite a bit of guesswork that goes on there, you know, with a composite sketching and Richard Ramirez it's one of the worst ones I've seen. I mean, the Ted Bundy one looked kind of like him. But this one, man, it really just didn't look like him. What do you think? Okay, my next notes are about Inspector Frank Falzon. So he was working the San Francisco case 
on a dude that was killed by Richard Ramirez, whose name was literally Peter Pan. Okay, I found the name very interesting. Very, very unfortunate death and tragedy and murder. But the name, his name is actually Peter Pan. Can you believe it? Anyway, this guy, Frank Falzon, was... I've never seen someone more disgusted by a serial killer in my life. The way that he described and on his face that tension and rage that he was holding back as he said that this killer would walk into the house, murder people, and then eat stuff out the fridge, regurgitate it, masturbate on the carpet, and then draw a pentagram on the wall like he was utterly disgusted. I also like how he explained what happened, what went wrong when that lady Diane Feinstein made that crucial mistake in the case of actually just relaying all the information that the cops had gathered to the public. And the way he described what happened actually made a lot of sense. So he said he asked the mayor's office if they would issue a reward for information for the arrest and conviction of Peter Pan's killer. The mayor's office then contacted the chief's office, to find out what this was all about. Then the chief explained to the mayor of San Francisco, which is Di it was Diane Feinstein, that the police had a link to the Night Stalker. So she steamed ahead and decided, well, this is a good idea. Let's put that reward out there. But unfortunately, it was a press conference that she held and gave out all the information to the public about Richard Ramirez before they caught him, which obviously could have meant that maybe they would have never caught him. So the fact that they still actually caught him in the end was quite amazing. So she put a $10,000 reward out there um, at a press conference, and she actually talked, she showed the composite sketch, which I don't find that a threat at all, but she talked about the Avia shoes and the weapons he used and what his um, MO was, and she just released all that information. So that is really learning from her what not to do. As obvious as it might seem, she didn't know at the time that it was that obvious. But yes, we learn from people's mistakes and now we know that's what definitely not to do. Now, my little two cents that I want to say is that it was actually the chief that never told her not to release this information. So I would like to hold the chief a little bit more accountable and not just put all the blame on Diane Feinstein. You know, she relayed the message. But maybe the chief in telling her, you know, put a reward out there and this is what it's about and this is what it's linked to. Like he really should have told her, make sure you don't give this information out to the public. So, yes, I think I think both should be held accountable, you know. Now, throughout the documentary, they obviously featured a lot of slow motion hammers falling to the floor with the blood spraying everywhere or just dripping and then slow motion dripping blood yes that did happen um, for me that wasn't as sickening as the rats in slow motion um, the cat was pretty cute and when that gunshot went off jumping up in slow motion was pretty cool but that rat will never leave my mind the way they filmed that thing and the way it walked away I don't know it just gave it such a grungy feel <laughs> to what we were actually watching and the crimes that were going on that I'm not too sure why people have such a huge problem with a damn hammer and the blood dropping on the floor. Because that's to be expected at a crime scene. Why the rat was there, I don't know. Okay, next I've scribbled down the name James Ramiro. So he was the young man 
that recalled the partial plate of the car that he had seen outside a house where a family was attacked, which happened to be a 1976 Toyota station wagon. And from that, because of his report and the partial plate that he remembered, they actually got Ramirez's fingerprint from the rearview mirror. So that was pretty amazing. But what I found pretty cool was that I wish I was also just like him when he was, I think he was 14, right? Between 14 and 16. Did you see him sitting there so impressed with himself? I mean, what happened to him? I hope he actually became a cop or something because I would guess, I would just assume that if that happened to any of us who love true crime so much and we were 14, oh yeah, we would be sitting in the bars when we we're 18, 19, 20 and being like, yep, I helped to catch Richard Ramirez. Because in part he did. It's because of that partial plate that they got the fingerprint and then one thing led to another and so on and so on. Of course, it's not all the credit. No way. I'm just saying that it's pretty cool to have been part of it. Okay, now a quick backtrack to Falzon, the angry guy. Very, very angry man. He has so much rage. Oh my goodness. I hope he has some anger management. Now he was talking about um, Armando Rodriguez, which was a friend of Richard Ramirez. And obviously in the documentary, we heard that it was a friend of Rick. So Richard went by the name Rick, which also makes sense. They're like, oh, it was this guy Rick. But like, I suppose Richard, if you nickname it, it would be Rick. Anyway, now Falzon, he saw Armando walk towards the car. He said to him, we need your help to catch the Night Stalker. You're going to help us solve the case. And then Armando got angry and said, he's not the Night Stalker and I'm not going to help you with anything. And what I found interesting is that Falzon, out of the whole documentary, he really didn't hold back um, on any of the swearing, on any of the rage, on really expressing how much he wanted to beat this guy up for not working with him initially. So he said, pretty boy, I'm going to split you from the top of your head to your ass. <laughs> and that quote was just hilarious to me because... Wow, he actually said that, you know, I've, I feel like climates have changed. That's like assault now. You can't actually threaten someone like that. But I get that back then it was still okay for a, a police officer to threaten to beat a witness up or a connection. Wow. Anyway, so because of that, though, he did actually reach to the back of the car and was really going to beat this guy up. And the guy said, Okay, okay, I'll tell you the name. It's Richard Ramirez, Richard Ramirez. And he just kept saying the name and they're like, all right, now we've got a name. But of course that was, you know, I think these days they handle things a little differently than with a fist. But hey, it was effective at the time. They got the name. They now had a fingerprint. They had the name and a partial plate. And off they went on the investigation. Okay, I already discussed these little scribbles here about Ramirez's childhood, that he had bad influences, that his cousin said that he, well, actually his cousin killed his wife in front of Ramirez, and his cousin bragged about what he did to people um, when he was in Vietnam. And then what I found interesting was just confirming all the drug use that Ramirez had. You know, that would definitely have influenced a lot of his behavior as well. So he was on cocaine, he was on heroin, he drank. I mean, that's really some hard drugs and that would for sure affect his, that's very tame to say mental health, but I mean, you know what I mean. It would for sure put him in quite a state of mind, especially paired with his belief systems that he would be able to do just about anything. And he had very little to lose and that made him an incredibly dangerous person. 
Okay, so next, let's look at the library dude. His name was Glenn Creason. He worked at the LA Los Angeles Public Library. Now, what I liked about him is how colorful his description of Richard Ramirez was. He said he was gaunt, disheveled, he had dirty hair, rotted teeth. And then he said, which also cracked me up, a very strong body odor, almost like a goat. Man, did I laugh at that. Like a goat? (laughs) Did he say that Richard Ramirez smelled like a goat? Now, if you think of Richard Ramirez, who really is, now he really is the icon of hybristophilia. I was saying that Ted Bundy, in my Ted Bundy book, I was saying he is the icon of hybristophilia, which is obviously a paraphilia, an attraction towards criminals, people who commit criminal acts, especially murder. Um, So, but I think Richard Ramirez was really the icon of hybristophilia. Um, They were even saying in court they've never seen something like it with all the women just pouring in and just that his sex appeal was so magnetic and you know so entertaining that women were just swept up by it. So to think that this sex magnet has a serial killer smelled like a goat, (laughs) I don't know, that just cracked me up. It was kind of like when Stephen Michaud said that Ted Bundy was really an untraveled, uneducated, chronic nose picker. That was classic. I kind of like it when people just call serial killers out for what they are instead of glamorizing them so much and making them so super sexy all the time because that's weird. They are so overly sensationalized and romanticized and I know that Richard Ramirez has a huge fan base, you know, especially for his looks and I mean... Who could blame people if they just go on looks alone? Except they don't. I think it really is the hybristophilia thing. But those cheekbones and the dark brown eyes and the hair that he had. And of course, his teeth were a mess when they initially arrested him. As my friend from True Crime Bones says, it's like he was eating rocks all his life. <laughs> I like that description. Um, because his teeth were really messed up. But then, as you saw in later pictures, they were fixed So he had them actually fixed and redone in prison. Lucky him, who would have thought of that, of dental care in prison? Anyway, to finish off the library comments, um, Glenn said that Richard Ramirez walked up to him and he had such cold and dead eyes that he looked like an animal that meant you harm. So that's pretty creepy. Um, And that he asked him for the section of books where he could find torture and horoscope information which then of course Glenn was relieved was not in his department so he just directed him elsewhere and moved on with his day and the next time that he saw his face was on the front page of the newspaper and he's like oh my word that's the night stalker because he'd actually met him okay here's a quick side note side comment about Linda Arthur who was a crime scene technician we saw in episode one and then I think this was from episode three as well And I liked, I think it was in episode one where she mentioned the lady across the road that had been raped by Ramirez, but she'd survived this attack and she had come over the road to her house, to um, Linda's house, and was calling her from outside for help because she had just been raped by Ramirez. Um, And she was just saying, well, I had some friends over and it was like three in the morning and we'd just been out to the hot tub and I was just smirking I was smiling because I'm like what were you guys up to because she was saying that's so scary that this was happening right there in my street but I think what was also scary for her 
was that they were having such a fun party and someone so dangerous was right there. I mean, imagine if he had entered their house. You know, if they were tipsy or drunk or having the time of their lives, that's really a vulnerable position to be in when someone like Richard Ramirez walks in. So I think that was kind of, it's not a reality check, it's kind of just a scary thought to think, oh my word, I was having so much fun, I was with my friends, we were in the hot tub at three o'clock in the morning, which is pretty damn late, right? I can't picture that lady in a hot tub at three in the morning, that's why she's almost like a bit of a, may I say, maybe naughty introvert, you know? I don't know if those are the right words, but you know what I mean, she just looks so sweet and innocent, but I think she was having a pretty good party that night. Again, not trying to offend, I just found it like I was just smiling because I'm like, ooh, what were you up to? You know, even when her friend was like, there's someone calling you from outside. She's like, nah, man, there's no one calling me from outside. She's like, no, for real, there's someone outside calling you. And then eventually she actually was like, oh, oh, crap. Like, And she went outside and there was this lady who had just been assaulted by Richard Ramirez. Okay, when they eventually caught Richard Ramirez, Firstly, I find it so interesting how that entire community was beating him up. He, they were beating the crap out of Richard Ramirez. I mean, did you see when they loaded him in the car what he looked like, how they put the bandage around his head? And I think they would have killed him, honestly. I think that community was so upset that like, oh, yes, yeah, we've got the Night Stalker and he was trying to run away and he did all of this. They were going to take matters into their own hands. That was real vigilante community. What do you think? Anyway, when he was eventually safely detained and taken back to the police station, um, Frank Salerno decided to sort of give him a bit of a hype so that that would get him talking, which I think worked. And he actually put Ramirez in the same cell as Kenneth Bianchi, which we know was the Hillside Strangler. And Richard Ramirez was very knowledgeable on the case. And he actually looked up to Frank Salerno to the point where he called him Mr. Salerno. That was quite something, you know, even he said he was taken aback of like, well, this guy actually looks up to me because I worked on the Hillside Strangler case. So what I thought about that, a thought that came to mind is just that I think Ramirez really would have been in that cell like, oh my word, this is so cool. It is like a celebrity cell of being like Kenneth Bianchi was in here, but that's really the danger of having the wrong role models because at the end of the day, you're just in a dirty cell with this one little toilet and a stretcher bed or whatever bed they have, a slab of cement. And there you are. You've just done the same dumbass stuff as the previous dude. And now you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. And he was actually sentenced to death. He just happened to die in prison. But like, really? Like, they, there's nothing unique about it. I think that's the next thing I want to say is that all these serial killers and murderers in general, criminals, they really all feel like they are so unique. And yes, sometimes their crimes can be unique for how horrific they are. But I think if we stop giving them cool names and stop making like, wow, these people are so magnetic and unique as the media does and hypes them up, maybe they would realize that it's, you know, not really something to strive for. I'm not saying that's a solution. I'm very talking very generally. It's just to think that he was like, oh yes, I'm in the same cell as him. That was to me just thinking, dude, do you realize that, yes, you're in the same cell as him. That's not cool. You just repeated the exact same cycle. You've just harmed yourself and others. Also, when they put Richard Ramirez in that police lineup for Anastasia to come and identify him, and she was saying, should I write the number two or should I write the word two? I found it so... I don't know if funny is the right word, just 
I don't know what word to use. It was just interesting, let's say interesting, to see Ramirez speak like like a teenage boy, like just so meek and just saying, they're like, okay, repeat the words after me. And they're like, shut up, bitch. And he's like, shut up, bitch. Where's the money? Where's the jewelry? Like the way he did it was almost like a naughty schoolboy. Like, like you've been caught now for, I don't know what, stealing sweets out of someone's bag. Now repeat after me. It was almost like that. You wouldn't believe the crimes that he committed based on how he sounded and looked there. You know what I mean? Okay, my next notes are about Daniel and Arturo Hernandez, which were the defending attorneys for Richard Ramirez. So they were saying it was a bit of a circus because these dudes had never defended someone before, especially for a crime like this. This is like a prolific serial killer and in they came. I found it quite sweet how they were both brothers and both became lawyers. That was pretty cool to see. Um, but what was not so cool to see was the one brother saying like, if this guy is going to continue talking about the prosecuting attorney, if he's going to continue behaving like this in a childish way in this courtroom, I'm going to have to take him outside and teach him a lesson, which is like, now who's the childish one? You know, it just, that was very, very unprofessional. Um, and kind of maybe should that I would not have included in the documentary because it took credit away from them for even defending someone like Richard Ramirez it really make them it made them look kind of silly and I would think that they did a fairly good job on the case even though of course you can't defend someone like that and win the case I mean remember Sam Amarante who defended John Wayne Gacy that was his first client when he had a private practice so he also had a huge thing on his plate um, to deal with and he dealt with it really really well and really maturely I think just the way they portrayed them, these two defending attorneys um, in this documentary was maybe not in the best light. Now, I wasn't there. I haven't watched the whole case. I will do all of that when I write the Ramirez book, which will be coming up at some point. Um, but I just feel like, come on, man. Did they have to include that time when he's like, I want to take this guy outside and teach him a lesson? That was embarrassing. A little bit cringy. What do you think? And again, even in court when Ramirez was sentenced, Oh man, when he said, Hail Satan. And then afterwards in the documentary, they talk about, wow, they would just stick with people. The way that he had the pentagram on the hand. I mean, the photos, yes, they're forever. They're kind of iconic in the serial killer realm. But like, the way that he said it was so tiny. You know, he was a tiny lion cub just saying, Hail Satan. I didn't find that like, oh my word, that will stick with you forever. That is so shocking and so hectic because he sounded like a little boy, you know. I know what he's saying could be scary, but the way he said it wasn't really scary. Then in episode four, towards the end, we saw, I can't remember the guy's name, I didn't write it down, but where the guy said fame generates attraction and that some woman wanted to fuck Ramirez simply because he was famous. Yes and no. I would agree, but also disagree because it's not just because he's famous. It's also because of the hybristophilia and actually being attracted to that, to criminal acts, you know. So you get many cases like that. I mean, if I think of the revulsion of how many women are writing to Chris Watts right now, sending him pictures, trying to look like Shanann, that's crazy to me. If you haven't listened to my Chris Watts episode, it's the one just before this um I cover the case there a little bit and I will at some stage do some more episodes on that case. I think I could talk about it for a while, but that to me, those groupies, man, 
I don't get it. Not with Chris Watts at all. I mean, Ramirez, I kind of get it because look what he looks like. And then he's like, hail Satan. And he comes across as like this little boy who just needs to be nurtured. And if you look at who he actually married once he was in prison, that lady could have been his mom, man. Not? Am I wrong? I must look at the actual age gap. But like literally she looked like a, a motherly type, like a nurturing person who just wanted to nurture him. Yes, and that could be, I guess, uh, I was going to say a psychological disorder, but I think it would, it kind of is in general terms, but it's, it's a paraphilia. It's a different type of sexual attraction. The one quote that I kind of like of Ramirez when he's like, I'll see you in Disneyland after they'd sentenced him to death. And when he also said that, that's the one time his voice actually went much deeper, where he said that you know, he's basically so profound that he's bigger than anything that anyone can comprehend. His voice had gone much deeper there and he was much more, I wouldn't say he was always masculine, but much more masculine and just trying to really defend himself in that moment and just say something big, you know, to protect his ego, I guess. So that was interesting to see as well. Of course, after I think it was just over a decade or so of being on death row, he got interviewed by someone. I didn't research this too much. I just find it interesting how Ramirez said, you're not going to make me look bad, are you? But like, dude, I think you made yourself look bad. I don't think at this point someone can make you look bad. And I always find that interesting how these serial killers, either with life imprisonment or death row on death row, are like, are you going to make me look bad? <laughs> like... I think you did that all by yourself, you know? But anyway, I understood why he said it. They were recording conversations and he always wants to portray himself in positive light, you know? That's what they try to do for survival. I think most of them think that they could appeal the case or either get life imprisonment instead of the death sentence or shorten the sentence or whatever. Again, with the Chris Watts case, we can see that he actually is so delusional right now that he thinks he's going to get a shorter sentence. So that's an interesting one. Anyway, to finish off this episode so that it's not too long, I just want to say that I thought that it was very well done. I really enjoyed it. I like all the effects they had, everything they put into it. I'm very much looking forward to when Netflix releases a Dharma docu docuseries as well. I don't know how many episodes they will be, but I'm very excited for that as well. And of course, I will at a later stage, there will be a full season of Richard Ramirez on the podcast. There will be books, there will be audiobooks and everything. I'll get to that at some stage. That's not the plan for now. For now, I've got some other books that I've got planned for this year. But I hope that you enjoyed the episode. I hope that there are many more crime documentaries that get made. And if you did enjoy this type of a review-based discussion episode, let me know on Instagram. It's grizzly underscore books underscore true crime. And then if anything else comes out, I can let you know as well how that went or review it. Um, I think it's, it's nice to do these type of episodes. I certainly enjoy it. And if you do, please let me know as well. I'll see you in the next one. Even psychopaths have emotions if you dig deep enough but then again maybe they don't <laughs>